All right, I'm going to go ahead and get us started. We, uh, we probably need to end five or ten minutes early to set up for, uh, for lunch afterwards. If, if you're able to help, that'd be great. Today we're going to be talking about chapter 19 of the Confession, uh, the Law of God. So I'm hoping there's questions so we can have this. I think it's more... Uh, fruitful when we have questions, because I know some of you are very familiar with the confession, some not so much. So questions always help add clarity to understand what y'all are thinking. So please ask questions as we go, rather not just lecture the whole time. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for another Lord's Day. We thank you for the gathering of the saints. Father, we pray you would bless this day, you would give us rest. We pray we would rightly honor this day as you've called us to do for our good and your glory. Help us now as we look at your law in the Westminster Confession. Help us to rightly understand your law, to appreciate it, and to love your law, to be hearers and doers of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right. Rick said, oh boy, there's pictures on this one, but this, this is the only picture, so. <laughs> Sorry, the rest is words. <laughs> Actually, it's just the confession, too. So I tried to make them as big as I could. Um, But some of them don't even fit on one page, so we'll work through it as we go. All right. Chapter 19 of the Law of God, section 1 says, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. All right, so the first section here starts off reminding us not just of the law and who gave the law, but of the covenant of works. So the, I like systematic theology because that's how my brain works. One of the things about systematic theology is you can't do one section without doing other sections at the same time because of the way it's all interrelated. And therefore, they're starting off here reminding us of the covenant of works. But first, who gave Adam a law? That's the first question, right? Who gave Adam the law? God did, right? God is the giver of the law. So as we go through this whole section, I want us to always have that. As we go through all of life trying to obey God's law, remember, it's the lawgiver who gives the law, right? The law flows from his nature, and he's good. And therefore, his law is also good, right? We, we tend to forget this as we, we think about our own disobedience to the law or how hard it is in our sin nature to obey it, but the law is actually good, okay? So it says, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works, When did he give this law to Adam? In the garden. So what verse says he gave him the moral law in the garden? We don't have a specific verse. What law do we know specifically is called out in Genesis? What command? To not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So, but here the Westminster divines are saying he gave Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity 
to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. So it's talking about the moral law, okay? All, all of God's moral law, which we'll see is summarized in the Ten Commandments. So how did he give Adam this law? If, he, if the Ten Commandments were not given, how did Adam have this law? Well, if we'll recall, God himself gave it to it, and how did he give it to his creatures, to his to man, because man is what? Made in the image of God. And the law is written on our hearts from creation, right? Romans 1. Romans 1 and 2, right? What does it say? Everybody knows God's law. Everybody knows God is divine. He exists. But we, even the heathen knows God's law as it's written on his heart. Now, We'll talk about that law has been perverted. Due to our, we have perverted it. The law is not perverted, but our understanding of the law has been perverted because of our sin nature. But every human being has this law. So Adam was given the law written on his conscience at creation. How was Adam created? Good, perfect, righteous. So his understanding of this law would have been much clearer than our understanding of the law, right? Apart from Scripture, he would have had this perfect understanding of God's law written on his heart. So who else was this law given to in the garden? His posterity, right? Everybody. At creation, this law was given to everybody. And how are we to obey it? Personally, I need to obey it personally, entirely, that means all of it, exactly, and perpetually, always, right? We have to remember Adam was capable of doing this when it was given. He had the ability to perfectly, entirely, exactly, and perpetually obey God's law. He had that ability. God made him good. He had the ability. There was no defect in him. And there was certainly no defect in the law. And he promised life upon the fulfilling of this law. And he threatened death upon the breach of it. And as we mentioned, Adam had the ability to keep it. So how does... How does this, does anybody have any questions about this? Because, you know, the, the moral law given at creation goes along with the special command not to eat of the tree, right? So we aren't, it didn't spell it out. The moral law is not spelled out. It's written on his conscience, but he is given the specific command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When he eats of the tree, what law did he break? What do we think? Any guesses? Most theologians would say all of them, right? All the, all the commandments were broken at the eating of the tree, if you think about it. The first commandment, did he honor God Have, as the only true God? No, he didn't. False worship, blasphemy against God not honoring the Sabbath by looking to enter into the rest that God was holding out for him, right? Did he honor his father? 
No, no, right? Did he murder? Well, yeah. Who died? Him, Eve, and the rest of humanity, right? Think about him. Stealing what wasn't his, not holding to the truth, God's revealed will, not being content with his own situation and coveting, falling. So all ten commandments are broken at the fall, right? Listen to, let's go back to section, uh, chapter 4, section 2 of the confession. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. He's made perfect after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgression, uh, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. Beside this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures." So here we see the the moral law combined with the special command uh, in the covenant of works. So this idea of the covenant of works being all of the moral law, okay, that we are required to perfectly and perpetually keep. Any questions? Comments? So another thing I do want to mention is, you know, God, God's law is, he's the lawgiver, it flows out of his nature, <clears throat> but it's also what's best for him. Our, it's a way in which we are designed to live as creatures, right? So it's good for us too. Yes, we, we should obey God simply because he is God, and as believers, even more so because he has redeemed us. But the law is good for, for us. So the, the, the example we use in the fourth and fifth grade Sunday school class is um, around this idea of design and God's design and his law um, is the idea of a fish swimming in the water who wants, to, who wants to be free from the water, right? He wants to be free or free from the law. So you take the fish out of the water and you throw them on the beach and what happens? Of course he dies. Similar for us in the law, right? We think we want freedom from the law, but at the end it's death for us. Simple analogy the fourth and fifth graders pick up on. All right. Um, also mentioned in here, you know, was this idea of the probationary period where if Adam had continued in obedience, then he would have been confirmed in righteousness, um, which, as we see, Jesus did continue in obedience for us and was confirmed in righteousness. Um, any questions on any of this before I move to the next slide? Yeah, so he is passing a test, so to speak. Yes, you were righteous. You've, you've fulfilled it. And we see this language when Jesus came to fulfill the law. And then at the, in Revelation, we see that those who, who have the right to eat from the tree of life, right? And we do, in Jesus, we have that right to eat from the tree of life. 
Now, there's debate between theologians whether they were eating from the tree of life already or, or couldn't yet until they... So it doesn't say. But in the new heavens and the new earth, the tree of life is, it's for certain, is very explicit that we have the right to eat from it. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Right. Several different places it talks about it. All right, this section two. This law after his fall, continue to be a perfect rule of righteousness. All right, so at the fall, or after the fall, the law did not change. We changed, right? The law does not change. It remains a perfect rule of righteousness. God does not change. His law did not change. So, One commentary that I I read in preparation was um, A.A. Hodge, Archibald Alexander Hodge. Um, And he had some interesting thoughts on on some distinctions on the law of God. Um, One is laws that flow from God's nature, like love. You know, that does not change. God is love, does not change. Um, Then there's laws that are about our nature or creation. So you think of like creation ordinances, like marriage. Okay, so as long as nature exists as it does, those laws remain. And you think of Jesus strengthening um, um, the idea of marriage between one man and one one woman in the New Testament, as opposed to some of the things that were happening in the Old Testament. So as long as nature, and then there are laws that are kind of specific to certain circumstances, which we'll talk more about. I thought that was an interesting distinction of his law, but here in section two, talking about the moral law, is saying this law after his, after his fall, that's Adam's fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness, and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments and written in two tables. So this, this idea, first, this idea of two tables, I don't know, maybe Rick could speak to this or somebody with church history or some more church history back down. Um, the idea of two tables, we often think of the first four commandments and the next six commandments on each table. My understanding from reading commentators is that, well, typically in a covenant, there were two copies. So it was more likely that the law was written twice on each copy. For each member in the covenant, if that makes sense. But nonetheless, it is true that there are two groupings of the Ten Commandments, our duty towards God, which is commandments one through four, right? And then our duty towards man, which is the second six commandments. Does that make sense? So if you think about, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, no other gods, Right? No false worship of God. Blasphemy, the Sabbath. These toward God, kind of the vertical sense. And then the next six towards other men. So this is this is what the Westminster Confession was referring to uh, in these two tables. Jesus, of course, summarizes these two tables in the gospel according to Matthew in chapter 22, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment, love your neighbors yourself. And he says this, on this depends all the law and the prophets. He's just summarizing. He's not changing. He's reinforcing, summarizing that law. Any questions? Comments? All right. So we had the law from the beginning at creation all the way to Moses. Everybody still had the law. It's written on everybody's heart. Now we have the law explicitly given to God's people on Mount Sinai, written on the tablets, which is the same law, right? So that's the moral law, the same law that was given in the garden and that's written on man's heart and creation. Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. All right, so he gave to who? The ceremonial law, which is the next category that the confession calls out, is given to who? Okay. So unlike the moral law, which was given to everybody, written on man's heart, this law was given specifically to a nation. And what was the purpose of the ceremonial law? Typical ordinances. That doesn't mean just like ordinary ordinances. That means they are types or shadows of things to come. Can anybody think of an example of a typical ordinance that might be related to worship in the Old Testament? There's lots of sacrificial laws, right? What are the, what's the point of those? How are they typical? Because they're pointing to their need for a sacrifice, right? An atonement for sins, and that that was coming. So ultimately pointing to God is going to provide that sacrifice. Okay, so there's lots of laws in the Old Testament regulating these ceremonial things. What to sacrifice, when to sacrifice, exactly how to do it. Lots of laws. Okay? God was exact in how these things would happen. And these revolved around their worship, of course, of God but also, they obviously reflected his graces in, in showing that he was long-suffering, he was providing. Even, even then, they saw these as providing atonement for sin, even though they ultimately were not providing atonement for sin, but they were effectual for the time being, for them understanding that their sin was being paid for, even though they were looking forward kind of blurry still at this time, can't quite understand what's going on, what God's going to do, how he's going to atone ultimately for sin. But they had his law, and that, the law was very clear as to what they were supposed to do. And partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties. So 
I would imagine if we were um, part of Israel in the Old Testament, it'd be hard to draw out these categories. It'd be harder than we, we can nail. So we have categories of moral, ceremonial, judicial laws. But they, they saw laws as God's law. They were doing it, right? They were a body politic. They were Israel. So they might not have been able to draw out these categories, and, and they don't see the, the abrogation of the civil and, and judicial laws as Christ came. They just know this is God's law. He's given to them. They need to obey it. So part. So I say that to say, you know, it might not be what the divines are getting at here. One law might not be specifically or only for ceremonial reasons. It might also have some moral uh, reasons also wrapped into it. And it's certainly true of the judicial law, which kind of hangs on the moral on the moral law, right? And even the ceremonial law, in a sense, hangs on the moral law as it's looking at atonement for sin, right? So in the next session, section, judicial law, sure, there's, um, there's specific ordinances that were given to Israel that were mostly an application of the moral law. Like we, the most common one is the, the parapet around the roof, right? And you have to have a, a fence around your roof so that people don't fall off. Well, that's really... There's moral underpinnings to that, right? You don't want your neighbor to die. You don't want a harm to come to your neighbor. And so there's that specific law. Other examples. Cities of refuge, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a great one, actually. Um, you think about somebody um, who had been charged for murder, I guess, and hadn't been proven yet, and they go to a city of refuge so that they aren't, revenge isn't taken out. So you have all these different laws like that that pertain specifically to Israel. Now, it's interesting because the, the, you know, in the next section here, he also gave as a body politic, as Israel, as a political entity, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other nail further than general equity thereof may require. So since we're talking about both of them at the same time, um, this idea of general equity, meaning there was a point to the judicial law. He didn't just give it just to give it. It wasn't arbitrary. It was for the good of his people in Israel, right? And to point to his nature in loving his people. Um, but those specific ordinances expired, but if you think about it, do we have laws that are civil or judicial that we're required to obey now? Well, of course we do. And Paul and Peter would both reinforce that in the New Testament. We need to obey the government under which we live, right? So long as we aren't disobeying God. So, in a sense, these laws went away as God had given them specifically to Israel but we still have civil and judicial laws, just not given specifically to the church. It's given to everybody, which we need to obey as Christians. Does that make sense? So it's not, it's not that judicial laws 
no longer exist. It's those specific ones, and that's what they're getting at. And so, um, you know, we have laws that you have to have a fence around your pool in your backyard if you have one to protect your the, the two-year-old from falling in the pool, things like that. Mr. Fender. So, so I guess, first of all, that's a theoretical question. I'm not sure that would ever happen. Second, I think the Puritans tried that in New England, and it didn't work out so well. Because um, your, your idea is that everybody there is a Christian, is part of the church, and that this government is now... So if I, as a Christian, can tell everybody what the law is, again, theoretical question, because I don't think that'll ever happen. Um, I, I, you would have to, I think you could look at each law case by case. Certainly the ceremonial law, no. Christ has come. In fact, it would be blasphemy to go back to the ceremonial law and start sacrificing again and doing those things. The judicial law, okay, some of them maybe we should have a parapet around the roof. But I don't think it would be a one-for-one one because the Old Testament said that we, then we need to do it. It applied to Israel as a body politic is what the divines are saying, them specifically. But back to Matt's earlier point, the, the, the judicial laws were hanging on the moral law and provide an example of application and Really, all our laws really have to, in a sense, hang on the law. Now, we have unjust, unrighteous laws in America, but all of our good laws ultimately draw from God's law because it's written on our hearts. We know you're not supposed to kill one another, and so there's a law against it. Why do we know? Because God wrote it on our hearts, and that's his law. So you can't, you can't get away from it. You can't get away from God's law, even if as an unbeliever. Everything you're doing is still somehow based on how he's designed you and created you and the laws you're coming up. Now, you can certainly pervert them, and we do, and create unjust laws and do things we shouldn't do, but you can't escape the way you were made, your nature, right? We're dealing with that in the culture right now, right? People, men are trying to call themselves women, but they can't escape the fact of nature, you can jump off a building and say you're going to fly like a bird, but you won't escape nature because that's God's nature. He, he made it. So, you know, to, I guess two cents. So for every law, there's a positive, right? Don't kill. But the other side of that is protect your neighbor. Um, I don't know if you were alluding to this or not, but the death penalty is the first thing that I start to think of. You know, should there be a death penalty for murderers? And I think 
a lot of Christians would probably come down and say, yeah, there should be, depending on the type of murder, first degree. There's, we've split it up into different degrees, and there's debate over that. But it should be punished. I don't think we would disagree about that. Murder should be punished, and the murderer should be prevented from continuing to murder. In addition, you know, the positive command to protect our neighbor and to do what's best for our neighbor. Um, there's a multitude of ways. Don't go down Grove Avenue at 70 miles an hour. Right? In a sense, that's the sixth commandment. You don't want to kill your neighbor. Don't be reckless. And there's lots of laws that are, that are based around protecting life. Right, and promoting life. Now, unfortunately, we have laws like the abortion laws that are not, that are unjust, unrighteous, because we've perverted them. But everybody knows, everybody knows it's wrong, whether they admit it or not. So this is the general equity thereof. So in this, (laughs) that's a big question. So here, it means that Essentially, what is the purpose of the law that was applied to Old Testament Israel? What was the the purpose underlying that law? The the parapet around the roof, the purpose was to protect your neighbor, to love your neighbor, to protect his life. If that's the purpose, how do we take that same purpose and apply it right now and here? So in that sense, the laws would be equitable or after the same end or purpose. Now, you're asking a much bigger question about equity, I think, that's revolved around a modern notion of equity and us all having the same thing and all that stuff, which I'm not, I'm not prepared to. <laughs> yeah, and yes, in this, yeah, I'm not saying that me and you should both have the same amount of money, if that's where you're going, so. <laughs> yep, so your question is, what do we do? Do we have to obey it? Um, yeah, so I would suggest that if a law is not forcing you to sin, then you need to obey it. If it's a, if it's a law given by our government or the official government, and you're not required to sin by obeying it, you should obey it. You should be submissive to that, to the to the to the governors that now we can certainly work to change those laws and I agree that's unwise to drive 25 on the interstate of course if everybody's driving 25 it's still meeting the purpose of the law to keep people safe we just know we could drive faster and still be safe so again I wouldn't be sinning by driving 25 on the interstate if that was the law a more a more common application might be tax law how much is wise to take from your people and to use on what things. Um, and that, you know, gets a little stickier, but I haven't found a way yet to justify not paying my taxes as a Christian, but there may be some. <laughs> you know, you think about when the world is looking at the church and sees her obeying laws that aren't causing you to sin, but the church is submissive, we're good citizens, this is good. This is a good thing for the world to see us doing that rather than, you know, fighting for, you know, me, my, the way I want it, all that stuff. Now, I'm not saying we can't work to change laws. Of course, we want to make them more just and more wise and all those things. But that submissiveness 
is a good thing too, as the world looks on. All right, we got about ten minutes. Um, any other comments on on this? So this law remains, is what we're going to see here. These two go away with Israel, but the general equity of remains. And the general equity is what? Based on this guy. Therefore, it remains. The moral law doth forever bind all. Christians before the fall, or Adam and Eve before the fall, Adam and Eve, and all people after the fall, Christians and unbelievers. So it says, as well justified persons as others. Well, there's only one others, and that's not justified persons. To the obedience thereof. So who should obey God's law? Everybody. We got to start with that, right? Everybody's under God's law in that sense. We owe obedience to God. And that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, because of the substance of the law. Remember, it's designed for us as good, right? To love God, to love neighbor is good for us, but also in the respect of the authority of God the Creator. He is God. We owe Him obedience. At the end of the day, all we can say is what? We've only done our duty in obedience, what God has required of us. Who gave it? Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve but much strengthen this obligation. So, the, the, the assembly here is just driving home that the moral law stands. All ten. All ten commandments stand. They don't go away. Christ doesn't do away with them in the gospel. Any questions? Comments? Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be, there, to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. All right. So, we are no longer under the covenant of works. So when we, the law has not gone away, we, are, we still need to obey it, but we are not obeying it in order to earn God's favor and be confirmed in righteousness as Adam was before the fall. In fact, we can't, right? It's too late. Even if you wanted to do that, even if that was an option, you can't do it. It's too late. You've already broken the law. Remember, personal, perfect, exact, perpetual obedience is what it requires. We've all failed already. Too late. So, good thing is, Christ has done that for us, right? So we are not under the law to be justified or condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Okay? You can't earn salvation, but the law also doesn't condemn us as believers. We've been justified. But it is of great use to us as as well as others in that it's a rule of life. So how do we know God's will? Well, it's written on our hearts, but because of our sin, we pervert that and don't clearly understand his law at all times. But guess what? We have his word, which brings more clarity to that. Right? And so it's a rule of life. How do you obey God? Well, he's written it down for us, so... That we can do it, or we can know it. 
So it directs us, binds us to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature's hearts and lives. So if we are rightly reading God's word and see his law, and Paul even says that even the, the heathen can see God's law and know that they haven't fulfilled it. But we have much more. We have the word. It shows us how sinful we are, right? It should, it should bring us to our knees and say, whoa, I've fallen pretty short of obeying this law. And so we examine ourselves and come to the conviction and humiliation and hatred against not just sin out there, which we need to hate, but our sin, come to a hatred of our sin, and now we have a clear sight of our need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. And again, the assembly was always pastoral, so they add that last line in there, right? You think of the law, you think of all the ways you've disobeyed the law, you've fallen short of the law, and then you think of Christ, how he perfectly obeyed the law all the time, perpetual, exact obedience. So Calvin in the, in the Westminster Assembly, you know, there's the three uses of the law. To, um, they, they do them in a different order, but they're still the same ideas. The law, pointing, the law revealing your sin, right, pointing you to Christ. The law in general is restraining evil and then as a guide and a rule for the believer. It is likewise the use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions and that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it to serve to shoot what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. So we, don't, we disobey the law. We don't face the, the curse and punishment of the law, eternal hell, but we can expect, to, we can expect bad outcomes if we disobey the law, right? I'd pick one, right? If you go kill somebody, things aren't going to go well. You may be a Christian, and you may not face eternal hell, but there are consequences to sin. Okay, and that's what they're trying to say here. You're freed from the curse threatening the law, okay? But you can expect some afflictions. You want to disobey God's law. Don't expect things to go real well. The promises of it, in like manner, shew them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof. If you obey God's law, generally you can expect things to go well, right? This isn't, God isn't promising some special blessing necessarily for obedience. It's certainly not just being justified, but if, you know, the concept is the same. Disobey. Things probably won't go great. Obey, things are going to go better. Now, Christians still face suffering for reasons unknown other than that is God's will. And so we get in this, you know, this mode where we're thinking, well, did I do something to deserve this suffering? And, they, and that's a, a something we struggle with. We got to remember God is our Father, right? He is disciplining us, and He's also refining our faith and revealing our faith through sufferings. So that's something we as Christians are always struggling with is because, A, we don't always obey, and so we're like, oh, man, am I getting punished for this? God does discipline us, but he doesn't punish us in that way. 
Does that make sense? I'm not, this is something I, I think we are all going to struggle with until we get home. But they were very careful in their wording here, and I think very um, pastoral. Although not as a due to them by the law as a covenant of works, so you can't earn justification. Just you, We want to obey God. We, by the Holy Spirit, do obey God sometimes, hopefully more and more every day, um, but not as under the covenant of works. So as a man's doing good and refraining from evil because the law encourages to the one and deters from the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. Neither are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the gospel, to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. Okay? Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So the law remains. They've already said that. And nor is the law contrary. Uh, to the grace of the gospel. So, those who have believed the gospel, believed in Jesus Christ, they are now a new creature, and their desire is to obey the law. Okay? So, the law is still good. And hopefully, as new creatures, we see that more and more. The law, oh, this is good. This is how God's designed us to live. And more than that, we have the Spirit. So it says the Spirit of Christ is the one who is helping us. So the, the guilt of the law has been paid through Christ, and now the power of the law has been crushed, and we have the power of the Spirit helping us to obey more and more. This is not contrary to the gospel. This is the fruits of the gospel. We should be endeavoring to obey God. And love his law. We don't always do it. We don't always love God's law. But we should. We should be endeavoring to do that as Christians. Be who we've been saved to be, children of God. Any questions? There. Comments? Maybe you can unpack that one word Um. <laughs> I think I'd go back again to this idea of as God, as our Father, has given us a law that is good for us. And so in the gospel now, we belong to Him. We are His children. Think of adoption. So now the law should be be a sweet thing to us, right? It's a good thing. We start to see the law as a good thing. Oh, you know, this is good for me. Not only is this good for me, but it honors God who is good himself. So the fruits of the gospel is obedience to God's law. That is a fruit of the gospel in a believer's life. Thank you.